0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in discussion groups on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are focusing on the topic of employee engagement, and my guest today is Robert W. Jacobs, who is the author of the book, Real-Time Strategic Change. Following today's interview, you are invited to engage Robert Jacobs in conversation on LinkedIn. Just log into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends. the Discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss employee engagement issues with your peers. You can dialogue with all of the authors who are members of this group. You will also find a link to a recording of today's interview as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I am Susan Stamm, and I'm pleased to introduce Robert Jake Jacobs as our guest today. Jake began to formulate a question early on while he was working in his very first job at an ice cream novelty manufacturing plant on the assembly line. And the question that he had was, why do some organizations work while others do not? As a pioneer in the field of large group interventions, Robert Jacobs has continued to learn better ways that people and organizations can change. His consulting... Teaching and writing have been great tools for his own discovery and further exploration of this question. Jake has worked with some of the largest corporations in the world including American Express, Corning, Ford, Home Depot, Marriott, Mobile, and Price House Coopers. He has supported major change efforts in the City of New York, the U.S. National Forest Service, the EPA, and the U.K.'s National Health and Employment Services. Jake has authored or co-authored six books, including You Don't Have to Do It Alone and The Change Handbook. Notre Dame's executive education program, the Navy's Postgraduate Institute, Rofey Park Management Institute in England, and St. Thomas University have all been ways to continue his own learning while teaching others. Robert Jacobs graduated summa cum laude from the University of Michigan and received a Master of Science and Organizational Development from Pepperdine University. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Cheryl, children, Allison and Aaron, his cat, Chowie, his rescue dog, Stella, and his best friend, Black Lab, Theo. To get a copy of Real-Time Strategic Change, visit Jake's website at www.windsofchangegroup.com. Jake, thanks for joining us on B- Bookends today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Susan.
0: Your book, which was actually written back in 1994, has really been a step uh, on your journey of helping organizations master the art of change so that they can respond to issues in what you call the real-time. What is real-time strategic change, and how did you uh, discover such a process way back in the late 80s and early 90s?
1: Well, let me start, Susan, by saying I, I, um, I was really blessed early on in my career to find my calling, um, which is really about how do, how do you help people, in particular large groups, create their what I call collective future So um, in the in the mid 80s, I had the opportunity to work with a group of consultants that were based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. uh, Kathy Danamiller and Chuck Tyson, Bruce Gibb and Al Davenport, when they were doing some really groundbreaking work at Ford Motor Company uh, with their internal partner Nancy Bedore, and so real time strategic change actually uh, showed up in the work they were doing. They started to bring together. Um, larger numbers of leaders in Ford, Uh, this was back when they were making money, um, Uh to say, what kind of strategy do we need? How do we shift the culture of this organization to be more participative? And so what started with 50 or 80 or 150 eventually grew to um, our working with 2,400 people who plant for the money and the launch of that, Mustang, how could you, in fact, get everybody pointed in the same direction, clear, committed, committed? Um, and so at its basic, most basic level, real-time strategic change is about how do you help people create their future faster?
0: What was, was really involved in developing you know, such a comprehensive process as described in the in the 1994 book you know, who was involved in, in this, and, and how long, for, you know, were you actually involved in really coming up with the original approach that you describe in the book?
1: Well, it really was um, an evolution, and so, you know, like, like any good process, um, there's learning, and it evolves over time. So, um, as I said, Kathy and Chuck and the others were involved in um, sort of a first generation of this work, and, and. Even they, you know, you, you have that saying, um, we stand on the on the shoulders of giants. And so the work that they did was based back in work that Ron Lippitt had done in the 60s around building uh, collaborative communities. So there's really, you know, if you talk about real-time strategic change, there's really deep tap roots back to a lot of the same concepts and approaches, whether uh, Marv Weisbord and Sandra Janoff's uh, future search work, even Harrison's, Owens' work around uh, open space, uh, Dick and Ak- Emily Axelrod, uh, friends and colleagues of mine, have done work in the conference model. And if you go back to the, to the tap roots, it, it really goes back to um, engagement principles and how you can um, really create opportunities for people to have their voice heard. In creating this future. So, in the you know in the late 80s and early 90s, when I when I decided I was going to write real time strategic change, actually it came out of my master's thesis. Uh, I can still remember where I was driving outside Ann Arbor, Michigan, on uh, U.S. 24, and saying, you know what, this this needs to get out to a larger audience. We can do all the good work we can, but there aren't enough of us. Um, and organizations and people in them could benefit much more. And so I made this decision. I I would take this thesis and go ahead and publish it. Um, immediately upon having that thought, I, um, all of a sudden had another thought, which was, I got really scared. I, I didn't know what it meant, but this was all in a flash. You know, if you get in an accident, things slow down. So I was like, oh my gosh, what am I getting myself into? Um, And then I I had another thought in the next moment, which actually has been a great aid to me the rest of my life, which is um, you can keep your feet moving even when you're scared. Mm -hmm. So I made this commitment that I would publish this book, and and, um, I think the the universe or higher power, God, whatever you would say, had a good test for me because 27 publishers um, said no to this book, which now – has had uh, 27,000 people buying it. Oh, my. So, uh, you know, I had this commitment that said, this is important. I need to get this out to the world. And so for me, it was just a matter of um, finding out how to do that um, rather than whether it would happen or not, although there were a number of people <laughs> who weren't so sure that that was, um, you know, a reasonable proposition. But as I found Steve Persante at Barrett Kohler, who um, was the best publisher by far, um that could have um, led me through the process with this first book. Um, we started to use real stories from real people in the book. So, ultimately, there are sixty-seven um, co-authors, if I could call them that, of this book with people telling stories about how they've used this approach and what difference it made for them and made for their um, their organizations.
0: Wow! And hats off to Barrett Kohler for for uh, you know seeing the uh, the power in the in the book itself as you just mentioned this this book really this this work is really the first generation of real-time strategic change could you tell us what this actually looked like back in 1994 and you do just an outstanding job in the book and really walking people through the the typical three-day event um, with great detail i will add and I really appreciated that. Um, could you could you give us a bit of a picture of of uh, you know this this event and and, and tell us uh, you know a little bit about um, you know who would have been involved in it and what it would have looked like?
1: Sure. Um, one of one of the things people have asked um, you know when I started to work with different clients they you know say well will it work here? Um, you know we've got a unique organization and I've i uh, you know I've worked in Thailand I've worked in Brazil I've worked throughout Europe in Mexico, um, all over the world. And it, it, in fact, always works. And and the reason that it, quote, always works is because the people in the organization themselves are designing their own change effort, and in this case, their own events. So we we have design teams, which are a microcosm of the folks who are coming. So, um, and the people who come, you know, you go back to some basic questions to say, well, you know, what's the work that needs to be done? And then who are the right people to do that work? And too often, I think, in the past, um, because of, I think, paradigms, because of methodologies, um, the answer of who needs to do the work got answered by the constraint of people's beliefs more than it was by who are really the right people to do the work. So you might um, go back to 1994, and if you can imagine walking into – um, a very large room with table groups, round tables, eight people at a table, and, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 tables or more um, stationed around this room and uh, a podium and, you know, little things make a big difference. So the podium always on the long wall, not the short wall, so that um, nobody gets a, a cheap seat in the sense of being in the back of a long hall hall. Um, and little things like that matter. So you would come into that meeting, you'd be sitting with colleagues of yours that um, you didn't typically work with. We call it maximum mix. So you'd have people from different functions, levels, roles, time in the organization. Because early in an event, you want to get smart collectively about what's happening inside your organization and outside and the best way to get smart isn 't actually to sit with your best friends and have the same conversations you 've you 've had for years and probably raise the same complaints that that nobody 's done anything about. Part of the problem with that is in fact you you 've been raising them with the same people and um, I was just working with a client, and there 's a, a saying i don 't know where I got it from, but um, every system is perfectly designed to achieve the results it does. Mm-hmm right? So, it, you know, obviously we got to do something different if you want a different result. And so in in this case, you know, the, the early parts of an event really are about getting connected to the people at this table group that are going to be your partners um, over the next several days. And then also getting what we call building a common database of strategic information. And because each organization is different and what they're wrestling with is different, um, this design team helps shape what that is. Often there was, um, we called it a view from the leadership bridge. So you would have the senior leader stand up and, and talk about what they saw happening in the organization and in the environment, the competitive landscape. Um, and we would then have a question and answer process as part of that that also was different. So So all these things track back to, how can you empower people to get the information they need to make good, informed decisions um, for themselves and their colleagues and customers and and all the people that are involved with the organization? So even that question and answer, typically what would happen is, um, you know, a a leader would finish. They'd say any questions. You know, we've all been to town hall meetings and um, two kinds of people react in that case. One, people who have an ax to grind, and they're very happy to raise their hand and sort of push on their own individual agenda again, and everybody knows that's what's happening. Um, Or everybody goes quiet because, you know, are you really going to confront this person and what's going to happen? And is it a career-limiting move to ask a question of one of these people? Um, Well, none of that leads to learning. So what we did is figured out that you could do something we came to call an open forum process, and so these again they 're they're really sort of basic common sense, but when you apply them and you put them together um, uh, you know Kathy, my mentor, used to say you know that 's where magic comes from, mm-hmm. so in this process, you know you'd talk at your table groups first, you know what did you hear, what are your reactions? what questions of understanding do you have, and collectively, at the table, some things would just get answered because. You know, you you weren't paying attention. Your learning style was different. You didn't track the same way. So some questions get answered, and the others are more complex questions. They actually are an integration of what needs to be known by everybody at the table. Then we literally called on tables, and we had tables on deck and who was next. And so, you know, the process had integrity. We'd rotate around the room. And when you asked a question, the other thing that would happen is after the answer, um, you turn back to the table group and say, you know, table forty two, did that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Not did you like it, not did <laughs> you agree with it. Right. But you know, did they did it get answered? Because often what happens is the leader may make their best effort to actually be responsive, um, for one reason or another they miss the mark. Mm-hmm. And people leave the meeting saying, See, told you so, they dodged it again. <laughs> um And and the intention wasn't to dodge it. Um, And, and in fact, we've often had, you know, situations where we come back and go, no, no, that's not actually it. What we really wanted to know was this other piece of the story. Um, And we encourage leaders, you know, people will ask a safer question. So we encourage them, you know, go two, three levels down. What's the real issue that's concerning people? And speak from that place. And, you know, you get a more efficient conversation, but you also build a lot of trust um, in the process and in the people By dealing with the issues, everybody knows what they are anyway. What we're saying is, let's put them out on Front Street. Let's put them above the table. The only way we can work on them is if we all know what they are, agree, and respect each other. Even if we have differences, let's know what those are. So, you know, a bit of a long way around the barn, but the beginning of an event is really about getting people um, with this common database. And then there's a second stage, and, you know, often these are two- or three-day Meetings, but the middle of it is really about crafting a picture of um, an organization and a future you want to call your own, and you'd be proud to call your own. And there are a lot of different sort of uh, techniques and processes and tools um, to do that, but basically um, it's looking at a preferred future um, as opposed to problem-solving. And the problem-solving is let's find something that's broken, fix it, Um, And preferred futuring says, what what do we want? Um, What do we aspire to create? And, um, you know, all of this goes back to some very good theory base. So um, Ron Lippett, who uh, I'd mentioned had done the work around communities, um, Ron had uh, come up with this uh, research project when he was at Michigan, and he put two groups together. One was um, focused on preferred futuring, the other on problem solving, and they got the same task. At the end of that, they did their research, and what they found was the groups who were doing problem-solving over time had decreased energy, and the preferred-futuring group had increased energy. The problem-solving group um, had increased blame. preferred-futuring group had increased ownership over the situation. And the last one was the the problem-solving group had reduction of pain solutions. You know, let's make it not as bad as it's been. Right. And the preferred-futuring group had innovative solutions, whole new ways of looking at the situation um, that opened up possibilities. And so the middle part of an event is really about crafting that future. And the, and the last part, and, and not to be forgotten, is so what are we going to do? What do you need from me? What do I need from you? We even had things where – functions of, you know, 100 people each would give each other feedback about how they could work together more productively. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's a, it could be an intellectual exercise and another binder on the shelf, unless you really drill down to what's it mean to me and what do I need to do? What's my part to play to make this story come true?
0: Well, it's was really an amazing, amazing process, and uh, you know interesting to to visualize something that large taking place simultaneously and you know I was curious you know what did it feel like uh, for you? I realize you were really part of a team that that um that drove this whole process, including your your internal advocates that were very much a part of uh, helping all of this to um, Come forth, but what did it feel like uh, to be involved in something that was so mm-hmm. large? And was it exhilarating, well, exhausting?
1: Yeah, I, I just gave you a very long answer to your first question. I could give you a very short answer to this one. Was felt great, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a word. Um, i mean to to i mean one of them is you know there there are certain things in life that we're good at and others that we're not and there's a long list of things that i'm not very good at um that i need a lot of support in and even when i try them, people are um encouraging me to find somebody uh, else <laughs> to do it um and um you know so i you know i certainly have a a good bit of humbleness on those things this work for whatever reason um is exactly what I'm meant to be doing in the world. Uh, it's easy for me to do. I, um, you know, standing in front of a thousand people and, and working to consensus um, with them mm-hmm. isn't anything that um, keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. Um, if for some people, they would run the other way as fast as they could. <laughs> this is, you know, coming home. And, you know, we used to say, so how do you, you know, somebody say, how do you control a group like that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the answer is, well, that's, the first problem is you don't. You don't, right? You don't control them. I mean, to think you're going to control a thousand people, you know, you already now you're already in behind the eight ball. So the thing is, how can you work with this design team so you come up with a process that people it makes sense to do, and they want to do it. They feel smart in doing it. It'll get them where they want to go. So part of it is having the right process, and the other, um, and, and I, I absolutely believe this to be true is when I'm up front or anybody's up front in a group like that, and, and frankly it's probably not even large groups, it's just life, but holding the space of possibility and the confidence that whatever it is that you're asking folks to do, that they're fully capable of doing it. Yeah. And so standing up front, I mean, you know, if I get up there to try and we you know, I'm doing some work now um in Europe with a retailer and we have an event coming up and There's a bit of um, gymnastics about groups that need to move and the sequence and why and how. And, you know, you know, the the logistics of these things is as important as anything else. And I, I said to my internal colleague, I said, well, you know, not only is it the right work by the right people at the right time for the right reasons, that certainly helps. So the other thing is you know i'm fully confident that they'll be able to do it and um and that's the other part you know the other side of the coin is really um holding that belief and holding the space so that people can step into it because in a lot of ways they're doing something they've never done before
0: absolutely mm-hmm. yeah and and the fact that you have that confidence in them to do it. It must be incredibly, as you say, I mean, it's really uh, strongly rooted in employee engagement and, you know, motivation and all kinds of positive things that come out of this besides the change. Yeah, and,
1: you know, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, it, 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 there's an exhausting piece to it, there's an exhilarating piece to it. Um, a buddy of mine, Barry Johnson, um, had described one of the aspects of this uh, real-time strategic change work. He said, by having the kind of engagement that you do, he's called it a forgiveness factor gets built in. And by that he means, you know, when, when, uh, when I do something and I don't engage you and it doesn't work, Mm -hmm. it's my problem to fix it. Right. I mean, in fact, you're very happy for me to have that problem. (laughs) um, If, though, we've done it together and something goes wrong, now it becomes our problem, our opportunity to fix it. And you're more motivated as I am to figure out how do we make it work. And so I even believe, you know, standing up in front of some of these groups, um, they know I have their best intentions um, at heart. And I am doing my level best to try and support them. And so sometimes, you know, it doesn't always look pretty right? I mean, a lot of times things don't go, you know, the trolley falls off the tracks for one reason or another. But I also know that because of the relationship and rapport, and you, you may say, well, there's a thousand of them, how could you possibly, you know, have any kind of rapport with an individual? But but my belief behind it is they know that um, we're doing the best that we can to help them be the best that they can be. And because of that, when things get a little... Um, you know, my English clients call it wobbly. When they go a little wobbly, we're all in it together, and we find a way to put it back on track. Yeah.
0: Well, you, you obviously had a, a tremendous bit of success uh, with these, you know, original approach of these you know, very large-scale events. What did you learn from doing real-time strategic change this way that led you to the second generation of this process?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question, Susan, because, um, and in fact, you know, there there are books being written now um, about, you know, why is it that the most successful companies um, end up in some way coming up short uh, by continuing to do what made them successful? So, you know, my story around that was that these events are so powerful um, that you really could move a system through having people get engaged in them um and there's a seduction in that because you know like to see something like that happen and to see the progress and to see the commitment and actually see the change um you know that that would be enough and yet as i was doing this more and more what i realized was something akin to um you know i call it now the rubber band effect there's a lot of progress, a lot of movement, a lot of commitment, and yet over time things began to slide back to the way they were. Maybe not all the way back, but but you lost progress. And as I looked at that, and I and I was thinking about it. Of course, I, I grew up doing all of this large group work. The vast majority of the rest of the people doing change work did not grow up with that as their background. They grew up in the field doing team building and, um, you know, process improvement and a lot of the things that just, they weren't on my radar when I was doing this large group work. So I looked at this and I thought, you know, there's wisdom out there that isn't part of this process right now. And these events, however powerful they are, they're like necessary but not sufficient. Same thing's true with the small group and the infrastructure and all of the design work that gets done. Not in these events, also necessary but not sufficient. And so putting those together and reframing this from sort of an event centric view, which is how I had thought of it, and saying, well, you know, this is um, events and a whole lot more. There's, you embed this within an overall change process, and now it becomes a tool in your kit bag, very powerful tool, um, but one of many that you can put in place so that when you start looking at change efforts, Um, and putting them into the way of doing business for an organization. Events are sort of a non-self-sell. They're not a normal thing that happens in organizations. So how can we take what we're learning there and embed it into daily work so that the most sustainable thing, I think, in any organization is work. I mean, it happens every day, and everybody does it. So the more you can engage people around this and make it not special, but make it part of daily work, um, the more sustainable the change is going to be.
0: So the second generation was really about getting the culture of the organization to really kind of embed this whole idea as kind of more ongoing work and activity. Were there any other characteristics of the second generation that were quite unique from the first?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that happened, and it really was sort of a, a key that opened the door out of what I you know, call the event-only game, was that stepping back um, and, and looking at, so what was the essence of why this worked? And if you go to the Real-Time Strategic Change book, there's 20 principles that get sort of outlined in the first several chapters. And uh, I was sitting with a, a buddy of mine, Frank McEwen, who um, was a colleague of mine, and we were getting ready to do a training session, Um, on RTSC in San Francisco. And so we got to the part, we said, okay, well, let's pull the principles out. These are really important. And we looked at the list and of course, there's 20 of them. And, you know, I was joking with Frank and I said, well, look, God's got 10 commandments, throws around a lot more weight than we do, right? (laughs) And so us having 20, him having 10 or her having 10 Probably we should cut these down a little more so that, you know, we're at least not asking the same, um, you know, as, as God, who's got a little more um, authority, so, so to speak. So we, we baked them down into six key principles, which actually survive to the day. Um, and when you're doing work consistent with those principles, you're now doing real-time strategic change work. So it doesn't have to be in a big room with lots of people it can be you looking at your calendar for the next week. It can be a conversation you have in the hallway. Whenever those principles are in play, what uh, I believe happens is you get faster change that lasts longer because these principles, at the essence, sort of the DNA of what was happening in those events, you can extract out and say, okay, this can be put into the way work is done. And as soon as we stumbled into those six principles, it freed us from the event only game where r t s c happened when you know you got a big facility and hundreds of people um, it opened the door to it being part of daily work
0: yeah what's really funny, almost humorous about that is you know the name of the process being real time strategic change, but yet it really wasn't real time it was this extra event that was you know exactly kind of this, you know this really false uh, not a real environment that people really worked in, so it really you know, in essence, the way that what you just described really is real-time strategic change. Now, now um, uh, is there anything different, you know, from the second generation to, you know, what you actually do today? You have the six keys from the 20 principles. Is there anything else that would define how it looks today?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think there's probably several elements to it. Um, And and I'll preface this with, you know, another short uh, story that um, Dick Axelrod, his good friend and colleague of mine, we were sitting back years ago and talking about all these different large group approaches. Um, And I said to him, you know, I looked over at him, I said, Dick, you know, it's a lot like dogs and their owners. And he, you know, sort of looked at me and said, you know, okay, you think creatively, Jake, but what does that mean? (laughs) Uh, you know, the little alleys out there on the edge. And so I said to him, I said, well, you know those those funny pictures where, you you know, the, the jowly man's walking the bulldog and the uh, woman with the high heels and the, you know, poodle. poofy hair has got the, right, she's got the poodle. And so I said, you know, in some sense, what we've all done is taken what, what we're really good at and put a framework around it, put some principles around it, put a name around it. And now we call it our work. So – The RTSC stuff, um, you know, if I look at the third generation, and this is sort of a natural extension of me, but I also think it has to do with, um, you know, being more effective. So one of it is, is that, you know, with these principles, RTSC, um, well, I say it, it plays well with others. So, you know, with kids, you get individual play, you get parallel play, you get collaborative play. With This approach, there are some approaches that that actually don't play well with others. This is what you need to do, and there's a big book to follow and a lot of steps to follow. Um, With RTSC, because you have these principles, really it's a question of, well, if something violates the principles, it doesn't work well with it. But I found over time more and more um, methodologies, approaches, and and colleagues that I'm able to partner with um, because it's a principle-based approach rather than process-driven. So one piece of the story is that it's actually finding more places to call home and, and be useful because it's an open platform, right? It's sort of the difference between, um, you know, HTML on the web and Microsoft Word. You know, it's designed to have a barrier. This is designed to have a bridge. Wow. That would be one thing. Um, Another is that um, looking at the principles now, and this is through work I've done with um, Barry Johnson that I referred to earlier, that there are some, um, he calls them key polarities, but there are tensions at play in any organization where it's really a both-and is a better answer than having to choose one or the other and assuming there's a fixed pie. So, you know, more concretely, I think the most unique principle in RTSC is the one that we call real time. And real time now in this third generation, able to both articulate but also then apply it, I think much more purposefully, is managing the tension right between planning for the future and thinking and acting as if the future were now. So you need to plan, and usually that's what most people spend their time doing RTSC says at the same time, you need to start thinking and acting as if that future were now in any way, shape or form. You can reach out and grab a piece of what that preferred future looks like and bring it into today's experience. You'll accelerate the pace that change occurs. So, you know, I, I was on a video conference today with this client in Europe and, um, now, it's really interesting. The CEO, the leader of this whole organization, was sitting there for an hour and a half with us with three leaders of a design team, an internal colleague, and me, and there was a conversation about what's going to be the best use of time in this event. Now, he said he wants to have an engaged organization. He wants to have uh, you know, a whole cadre of leaders. So all of this is part of the plan. It's part of the vision. Um I, I even have trouble when people say, well, here's our vision for 2010 or a vision for 2015, because it, it, it puts it outside your present experience.
0: Right. I mean,
1: right. by definition, if I'm talking about something in 2015, it must not be true now. So Paul, in this meeting, he was literally experiencing the leadership that he said he wanted. He was receptive to it. I mean, I I was amazed that, you know, the level of detail he was getting into, he wasn't micromanaging. He was partnering with everybody in that room to figure out what's a good answer for how to deal with this issue. And all the things that he's talking about wanting to happen in this organization, needing to move to a matrix structure, needing to think vertically, horizontally, all of that was happening right on the call in front of his eyes. And you know, it wasn't, you know, even modeling. People say, well, leaders have to model the behaviors. And, you know, I go, well, I don't know about you, but for me, models are people who look better than I do. They're better shaped. <laughs> they wear nicer clothes. Um, the lighting is always better for them than it ever has been for me. Sometimes um, we
0: don't even and- like them.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, and, you know, they end up on a reality show, and you think, you know, who are these people? So the whole, even the concept of modeling, I have trouble with because it's sort of, it's not real. So rather than modeling this behavior and then sort of putting yourself above the fray, I'm going to model this for you, Susan. This is the right way to do it. Um, Paul today, you know, his sleeves rolled up. He was a member of the team. Leaders were leading. He was engaging. Work was getting done. Um, And that future was showing up,
0: today. Wow. Well, you, you you kind of walked us through this whole uh, generation kind of conceptually, but if we could talk just a little bit about actual mechanics, um, you know, actually how this final, or I don't want to say final because obviously there's nothing that's final, uh, but, you, you know, where we're at with the third generation of real-time strategic change, I mean, is there any such thing as a typical process or approach? Um, You know, you've come a long way since 1994. Is there anything that that someone could expect, well, it's not real-time strategic change unless this happens, or is it just really so fluid?
1: Well, you know, tough question, Susan. So I'm a consultant, so I'm supposed to say it depends, right? Right. Um, Not a helpful answer, though, for most people. Um, So, yeah, I do do think that you can... um, uh, and it's different, you know, years ago in quality, they used to say, well, you'll know it when you see it, and it's like, okay, well, really sounds good, but not very helpful. Um, so in, in this case, with RTSC, I think, you know, one of the things that you can tell that an RTSC process is alive and well is that you you have, um, and I'll say the right people doing the right work, and, and you got to put right in quotes, but You know, one of the things is that when I show up places, they go, you're the participation guy because, of course, I do all these large group events and I'm engaging people. And my answer to them is, yes, sometimes. It sort of sets them back. And I said, well, you know, one of these principles is about engage and include. And the, the tension to manage is between participation and direction. So sometimes the most engaging thing you can do is to be very directive sometimes it's to be very participative. So if you were to like walk into an RTSC um, effort, you would see a lot of different people engaged in different ways and the challenging of each other around, well, what's our current assumption and is this serving us well? So assumption busting and and sort of um, encouraging people to look at things in new ways would certainly be part of it. You'd, You'd likely see some form of design teams up and running so that you had a microcosm of the larger system designing what needs to happen to move the system forward. And, you know, again, sometimes you'd say, well, you know, wouldn't it just be easier if Jake would just tell us what to do? Well, Yes and no, I mean, first of all, then you either get um you know you get resistance or you get acquiescence, neither of which is about creating the future. so you know design teams help make sure that we're not just jumping through the hoops that the consultant said are good ones to jump through so it's a little odd, but I would say another way you would tell that this was r t s c is that you would see people designing their own change effort. You would see people um, in microcosms of the larger system um, getting smarter collectively about what needs to happen. They're almost very simple principles that just get replicated. So today we were in this meeting talking about engaging people in a meeting, and we were getting smart about things that no one person knew everything, but we collectively built this understanding and then made some decisions Well, that's only in the spirit of then replicating that with 250 people in a few weeks. So this whole concept of microcosms and people getting smarter collectively to make decisions, that would be another thing that I think you'd see. Um, And I also think you would see leadership showing up in a lot of different ways and places um, that are beyond the hierarchy. The hierarchy is necessary um, and it's one of those necessary but not sufficient. So people stepping up to make a difference with unique contributions that they can make would would be another thing. Um, I would have said you'd see these large group meetings, except I, I worked with um, a, a buddy of mine, Myron Rogers, several years ago. And for whatever reason, the organization we were working in um, had some – unwritten cultural norm that said you could never bring more than 50 people together in a meeting. Well, all this large group stuff that I did was no longer applicable. So I sort of had to put one arm behind my back and start working. And it actually was helpful because it opened my own paradigm about, well, it doesn't always have to be hundreds of people in a room. So you, you might see some large group events, you might not, but you would... Definitely see this kind of design team concept, you would see things also happening quickly. So changes would be taking hold. And um, the way I talk about it, Susan, is it's like playing um, with house money in a card game because you get a return on investment very quickly using this approach because change happens faster. And then the investment, the return from those early investments becomes your later investment. So it becomes sort of a virtuous cycle where the more things change, the more things can change.
0: What you say are the most significant things you've personally learned and discovered by doing this kind of work over the past 25-30 years.
1: Hmm, good question. Um one thing I know that I've learned is um anything's possible, Uh, and and that really, if anything, um, we put up our own barriers, um, and that becomes the limit of potential, not people and the organizations themselves. So, you know, I've been uh, honored and privileged to be able to work. One of the projects was um, with the city of New York on a tuberculosis control project, and there was a pending pandemic at the time. I mean, this was really Mm -hmm. Um, serious um, implications. And uh, there were five agencies. They'd never gotten along together. They had been rewarded for not getting along. They'd never put their budgets together. I mean, there were all kinds of reasons why this shouldn't work. And they all had different protocols for how to deal with it, which, which in fact, were a lot of the problems because people were slipping through the cracks between them. And And so, you know, was that a doable task? Well, there's epidemiological data which you know what that is if you've worked in healthcare with the TB project but the incidence of TB in New York City has decreased uh 77% over the last 15 years year over year decreases and so the the concept of what's possible i think i just have a much broader canvas um that i paint on than i did years ago um I also think that I I have learned that uh, a lighter touch is often a better touch. So, you know, I actually, if I watch my work now, um, I, I had, it's not that I'm not there. It's not that I'm not showing up, but I used to um, feel like I needed to have a lot more control over things for them to work well. And now I find myself, I mean, I was with a with a client yesterday, and, you know, my mantra to her um, counterintuitively was care less. And I said, you know, if, if you care enough, nobody else has to. Wow. And they're all too happy for you to carry the ball on this, and you will never succeed. So I've watched myself in terms of, you know, h- how important do I make it? Well, it's got to be a relationship with me and the client, but also with the system. So, you know, the more I let go, the more others can grab hold. And I think that that's, um, that's another big uh, lesson that I've learned. Um, And and then the other is really, um, I don't know if it's a lesson as much as it is just an experience, but my curiosity about how does this stuff work and why does it work and what else could it work with? And so I, you know, somebody told me years ago, they laughed when they were working with me, and they said, you know, you have a relentless dissatisfaction with your current practice. So, you know, for me, I, you know, I sort of have this um, curiosity. Kathy used to tell this story about Bucky Fuller. Um, he came and gave a speech at Michigan, and um, she tells the speech that he told. Um, her, it was, uh, you know, he was saying he lie, he would lay on the beach at night and look up at the stars and, you know, just sort of be mesmerized by the beauty and grandeur of these stars. And then he said, you know, and then the thought occurred to me, maybe it's the stars that are looking up at me instead of me looking up at the stars, right? very Buckminster Fuller like. And so that kind of well, I don't know, maybe this is this is not the case. Maybe there's another way to do this. And so, you know, naturally just challenging you know, every day I get up and I look at something and I go, Well I don't know, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. As long as I can hold on to these principles. Um anything else is really up for grabs. And at the end, and I you know I joke with people, I say on my epitaph I'd I'd like um, you know, the, the message from a work standpoint should be It worked. Whatever it might take, it shouldn't be me putting constraints in place so that I'm comfortable with what's happening. Um, Ultimately, it should be what needs to happen does. And this curiosity I have, um, which, you know, I think it's it's a blessing more than anything. I think I got born with it and I'm I'm very appreciative of it. But, um, you know, it's, it's not about the answers as much as it is about the questions, and so that's really, I think, enabled me to continue to learn, but also, I think, for this approach to continue to evolve.
0: You've already shared a little bit about your work with uh, New York and tuberculosis, but just to conclude our time today, um, you share so many stories, of course, in the book about the, the far-reaching um, impact of real-time strategic change. Is There, one story, either from the book or, or from your more current work, that um, that you might share with us um, as we close off our time together.
1: Sure, and you know, I I, I, um, I think nothing um, better than the present because there there are a lot of stories in the book, and and people could read those, and they and they're good stories. Um, and i think helpful and um you know the, so the one that i would tell is probably the one that i'm um you know co-authoring right now with a lot of people this retailer in um in europe and uh it's really um an evolving process so um the leadership team doesn't exactly know what the right answer is at this point and they are open and in a conversation with people in the organization that says, okay, they happen to be an off-price retailer, so they're growing um, by leaps and bounds in a down economy because that's a good business to be in when people are watching um, you know, watching their pocketbooks. And so this whole process, as we're starting to build it out, um, it's taking its own form and shape so that there are people who um, – you know are buying they they're in charge of buying goods and then others who are merchandising who are in charge of sort of deciding where these goods go into the stores and these folks you know not unlike these city agencies in new york they they have been set up to be at odds with each other, sort of like design and manufacturing in a in a plant environment you know they they have different objectives they have different goals, and so they are designed to be in conflict in some ways oh boy. and this particular project um you know we we had a, a session a couple weeks ago and um senior leaders in each of these organizations were coming together to try and make some decisions and and you know they didn't have a very good track record of doing things together um and in fact sort of um I don't know what you'd say but you know they'd actually done a lot of work themselves on what they thought the answers were to the same questions but they hadn't done it with each other of course so you know it's a bit of a setup for what might be a difficult day or two and what we did is we actually thought through ahead of time and said okay so what are some decision guideposts something that you know everybody can get behind and say these are good criteria we make the decisions based on criteria We can get the personalities, we can get the historical, you know, artifacts of the um, demonizing that we've done, you know, we could let go of all that. And so in this process, what I'm watching happen is people getting into good conversations where they respect each other and they have some common goals that everybody can get behind and reaching out. And when they have a question, you know, in this meeting, there was, I mean, it's, remarkable if I step back from it because there were seventy two decisions that they made that they agreed on during this meeting. And there were two open issues that they left with. Wow. Now, you know, in in you know, they they were as surprised as anybody else was that they actually got there But the way that they got there, if you go back to these same six principles and you say, well, you know, were they building understanding, listening to each other through inquiry and advocacy? Yes. Um, Were they thinking and acting about, you know, the future? And so the kinds of conversations they were having, the way they were having them, is actually the way they need to work together in the future. Um, You know, this this whole concept of participation and direction we – We had one woman who was, like, hosting the meeting, and I jokingly the day before um, said, well, look, um, Nora, you're going to have to be the goddess in the meeting because (laughs) when we get to a point where nobody agrees, we can't can't spend the whole afternoon debating this. You have to actually wave your wand and say, it's going to the open issue wall. So she introduced herself to the group and said, okay, Jake said I'm going to be the goddess today, (laughs) and this is my job, and So, you know, this participation direction thing, you know, it worked because when she played her card or her wand um, is when people most wanted the direction. Um, And other than that, you know, it was a bit of a free-for-all where they needed to make decisions, they needed to have conversations. So this whole concept of these principles, you know, it shows up in this um, process, whether it was with the CEO and designing this meeting, which... You know, most people would say, doesn't he have something better to do? I mean, really? Well, he didn't. For an hour and a half, he was saying, I'm bringing all these people together. This is the future of our organization. I need to have my voice heard in this as much as anybody else.
0: Absolutely. Well, as we as we uh, prepare to conclude here, what tools, training, and support could you provide for people who wanted to harness the power of real time strategic change? Can you tell us a little bit about how you can uh, support folks and help them um, orchestrate this kind of process?
1: Yeah, um, Susan. There's several ways um, that uh, that people can sort of take take the next step. I mean, one of them. One of them, and we'll, it's a continuum, right? I mean, you certainly can read about it, and that gets you some awareness. Uh, there's um, work and opportunities because once you take this out of the hundreds of people in a room situation, really anybody can do this work at any time with any number of people, even yourself i mean i joke with folks when i do training and i said well you know it works with you know a wife two kids a cat and a couple dogs um, as well as it does with you know the city of new york so practical application uh, is uh, a kurt levine uh, had this saying once there's nothing so practical as a good theory and so Um, Even taking this out, whether you go to the Winds of Change group website and you can pull some materials down, um, but actually practicing and doing the work based on what your understanding is, is is one good way to start pushing the ball forward. There are webinars um, as well that I offer, and you can see on the website those. There's public trainings um, that we do a couple times a year where you can bring in a live case. So it's not like you're coming in again. um, You know, we did some of these trainings, and so we said, well, if it's about engaging and convening, then us running our own agenda and telling people what they should do um, isn't actually congruent with the principles. So, you know, you're encouraged to come with the team, bring an organizational issue or opportunity, and we'll do work in real time on that. So when you leave, you're smarter, more confident, and clearer about how you can move people in your organization – um into this process and partner with them in moving the organization forward. So there's things where the public training, there's the books, there's materials on the website. I've got a blog that, you know, people are welcome to um you know put their oar in the water on. And, you know, this may sound odd um in some ways, but you know, having um Kathy, uh, Dana Miller is my mentor, um, you know, she had always said, you know, you go into the world with open arms. And so if folks who, who listen to this um, have a question, I invite them to shoot me an email, give me a call. There's always time, and people have made time for me, um, sort of always amazed by how available folks are in the field and how willing they are to be helpful. And um and so it's, you know, it's sort of, uh, you know, a bit of a circle of learning, like a circle of life. You know, I really uh, invite people to get in touch with me in, in whatever ways I can be helpful to them in supplementing the work they're doing with this approach and these principles. It's not about replacing it, but it's about, you know, even bigger and better. Um, I welcome the opportunity to uh, to learn from them and, and also share what I've come to know.
0: That's Great. That's terrific, and, and I'm, I'm assuming that people can connect with you through your website. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that'll be the easiest way to do it. Um, you know, you can go to the website and just shoot, um, you know, uh, something to the contact page, and we'll, we, you know, we set up a time we can have a conversation. I, I do get around a fair bit with travel, so who knows? Maybe uh, you know, in a town near you soon, and and uh, it, but really, at the end of the day, it's really about how can we help each other. Um, you know, create a better world. And we do that through working together. And so that, if there's, you know, a last word um, to the interview, is really about um, what could I learn from others? What could they learn from me? And then the rest of it is a logistics game about, okay, how do we, how do we make it happen in a in calendar when we can get together? Um, but the intention behind it is, uh, is pure on its own.
0: Well, Jake, we all thank you for your excellent work and this great resource to help build employee engagement out in the workplace. It's really been great to have this time with you today, and I really would like to encourage our listening uh, audience to participate. To uh, I'm sorry, to purchase your your book, uh, Real Time Strategic Strategic Change. As I said in the very beginning um, of our discussion, uh, I was amazed at the amount of detail uh, about the process that you really shared in the book. It was um, you know, unlike many books that you read about something that really don't tell you how to do it. Um, And and there was really quite a bit of detail in the book. Uh, And that book, once again, can be purchased at Jake's website, which is www.windsofchangegroup.com. Following our interview today, uh, once again, you are invited to join in this conversation on employee engagement by joining a group on LinkedIn called Book Ends the Discussion. You can pose questions for Jake, who will be joining us in, in this discussion group, along with uh, your colleagues and peers um, who you invite to join us as well. You'll also find a link to our recording uh, from today's interview, as well as other interviews we've done. You can share these with others, and you can listen yourself. Uh, be sure to invite your friends to join this group. So thanks again, uh, Jake, for being our wonderful guest today. It's really been, it's been great to talk with you about real-time strategic change. Thanks so much.
1: Well, and thank you for the opportunity, Susan. Thanks for being here.